Well, we're in a series, Rooted. Take your Bible, and we're going to jump into the next installment of that. So it's Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 6. Let me just remind you of some things as you're, as you're turning there. Again, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, that uh, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul from prison. Uh, Paul, uh, in prison, he had never, just a couple little things in case you're new, and let me give you some background, or maybe you didn't get your coffee one week, and so you might have dozed off and you missed this little detail, Uh, but Paul was writing from prison. Paul was writing in the years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when the church was exploding across the known world, and Paul is planting different churches all around, and in this region, he had planted churches, but he had never physically himself, we know from the context of the story, he had never physically been to Colossae. And so just from the reputation of the church there and the people there, from his friends and colleagues that were planting churches all around, he had heard about them, was excited about the work that was going on there, how they were growing in their faith, and he wanted to continue to help them to grow. So he writes this letter to them. Another thing that was going on was in this church, there, there had been some some heresies that had begun to, begun to infiltrate, some false teaching that began to infiltrate the church. And so he was trying to correct that as well. So there's a few things going on. And so with his heart excited to help them and to get them rooted in Christ, which that's our series, uh, Growing in Christ, uh, let's look at what he has to say, the Apostle Paul, to the church at Colossae, and by extension, what he has to say, the, 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 the Lord has to say to us today. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. And now... Just as you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Now notice that this, this section that he begins and he, and he says, he's just reminding them of their original decision to, to follow Christ. He says, just as you accepted Christ. So, in other words, in the same way that you accepted Christ, I want to encourage you in that same way, follow Christ. So, that initial decision as the Spirit drew you in and and you realized that you needed Christ as your Savior, as you responded by faith, now grow in that same way. So, grow like you came to Christ. Think back. If you're a follower of Christ, how did you accept Christ originally? Did you accept Christ by working for it? Did you become a follower of Jesus by earning it? They accept, the answer that's no. They accepted Christ by faith through his grace. I remember back when I was a teenager, you guys know my story. When I came to Christ, I realized that I needed a Savior. And by faith, I prayed and invited Christ to be my Savior. Simple question for all of us today. Have you accepted Christ as Lord? And when we accept Christ as Lord, we do that by faith. Yes, the Spirit is working and the Spirit draws us, but by faith we respond. I would just say to you, if you're here today and you've not, you've, you've come, you've got a lot of questions about faith, I just want to encourage you that this is a safe place. We love that you are here, and, and we just want you to explore faith and kick the tires on faith, and we'd love to help you on that journey. If you ever want to get to the point where you want to talk to somebody about that, we would love to do that. We hope you feel welcome here, even if you've yet to make that decision. But if you've make that, as, as you make that decision, you make it by faith. It's not by works. We don't earn it. You don't earn your salvation. You're not born into it. It's not, oh, I was, uh, you know, my parents were, my grandparents were, and so therefore I am. No, that's not the way it works. Uh, Well, I learned the secret handshake. No, there's no secret handshake. There's no thing that you can do to become a follower of Christ. You don't pay your tithes. You don't do good things. It is, everybody hear me, by faith. 
We don't earn it. It's by faith. Acts 16 verse 31, Luke puts the cookies on the bottom shelf when he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So believe, believe that like the rest of us, that, that, that you got sin in your life that you can't fix on your own. And so believe that Christ died on a cross, that he uh, died on a cross, was put into a, tomb, into a tomb and three days later rose from the dead. Believe on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So it's by faith. And so just as you believe, first believe, now follow him that same way. So continue to follow Christ by faith. So again, we don't, have to, we don't have to work up our own strength and power. We can find help, and it's by faith. It's not our own strength, our own power, but by faith again. And what does he say? We must, verse 6, the end of it. We must continue to follow him. So when we think about our relationship with Christ, it's not like, okay, I realize that I need a Savior, so I check the box, I invite Christ by faith to be my Savior, and now I can turn my attention to other things, and I don't have to worry about that anymore. Check that box, got my ticket punched to heaven. That's not the way it works. He says you must continue to follow. And so we need to walk in him. We need to follow him. That idea of following Christ or walking in Christ, that's a theme that we see Paul talk about over and over and over. In the book of, uh, that he, the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, some seven different, seven different times, he talks about walking in Christ, following Christ. The ESV translation of in chapter 1, there's a verse that it says, uh, walk, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So again, this idea of following, this idea of walking. And how does he say we do it? Look at verse 7. He says to let your roots grow down into him. That's where we got the title of this series. Let your your roots go down into him. So following Jesus involves putting roots down. When you think of a majestic tree with deep roots, what do you think? You think of strength and stability. And those roots supply that. Those roots make it, make that tree able to withstand storms when they come. When the roots go down deep, it's those roots that provide nourishment to the tree. All of those pictures are some of what Paul's talking about. Put your roots down into him, into Christ, to be strengthened, to be nourished, to find stability for life. And then also he says, changing metaphors. He says, let your, let your life be built on him. So it's an architectural term. So not only do we follow Christ by putting our roots down into him, but we follow Jesus by building our lives up on him, on the foundation of Christ. Now the tense built on him means being built up. It's, it, it, it's, it shows us, and it's hard to see in, in English, but in that original language you can see he's talking about the continual action of being built up. As we think about our lives, can anybody admit that God still has some stuff to do to build in our lives? Some more building to do, some renovating. Anybody got some renovating that God still needs to do in your life? Can we just admit that? Or if if you don't admit that, anybody, you're with somebody here today, and as you think about them, there's some building that, don't look at them, but there's some building that, that, that Christ still needs to do in them. And what does he say? Uh, following Jesus involves building our lives up that we continue to grow and, and we let him renovate and build against that foundation that's strong. If you're going to have a, 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 a building that can withstand the storms, it's got to have a strong foundation. And the foundation is Christ. Build on him. 
And so what's some of that renovating? Maybe that God even today is speaking into you. Maybe you struggle with patience. Maybe you struggle with anger, that there's just these flashes of anger. And, and if you struggle to get a hold of that. And you realize later, oh, why did I do that? Why did I react that way? Maybe there's a love for a certain people, a certain group, and, and just there's those triggers that, that you just struggle with that. Or maybe selfishness or generosity. You know, what is the area, maybe that the, the foundation is Christ, but he needs to continue to build in you. So we put our roots down into him. We build our lives on him, the foundation. And look at the result, the second part of verse 7. Then he says, when we do that, then he says, your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught. Then you will overflow with thankfulness. You know, our world needs a church that has a strong foundation. A foundation that's built on the truth that we've been taught about Jesus in Scripture. Not the half-baked truth that the cultural pontificators would, would pawn off on us as what we need to believe. But, but what does Scripture say? What have we been taught? What does what Scripture taught us through the ages? Our families need moms and dads whose faith is strong, that's built on the truth, that's built on the foundation of Jesus, whose roots go down into Jesus. The parenting strategy of do what I say, not as I do, it doesn't work. We need faith that's strong. We don't need to live that hypocritical life, but to allow Christ to continue to grow us and to shape us and to build into us. Our kids need that. Our grandkids need that. Our communities need that. Our government needs that. Our church needs that. Every facet of society needs a church that is rooted in Christ, that has a foundation built on the truth about Jesus that has been taught us, as Paul says. The gospel that Jesus came to bring, the good news about him, the what, he, what he taught us about how we interact with people, what what Paul the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote down about what it looks like to follow him. That foundation that has been the foundation of the church for 2,000 years. That's what our world needs. And when that's what our foundation is, when we are rooted in him and in his truth and our lives are built on that, what's the result? Look at this last part of verse 7. Then we will be overflowing with thankfulness. Our world needs to see that too. Paul tells us that, that thankfulness is, is critical, that, that that's just the natural byproduct of when our roots are da down deep and our, our foundation is on Christ and we're being built up, we'll be overflowing with thankfulness. That's one of the key motivators that we see in, the, in a Christ-like life, a follower of Christ. We see it many times in his letter. We see it some six times in this letter to the church at Colossae. We see it in other places as well where Paul talks about that. Living thankful is that space that we, we have in our lives just to spend some time reflecting on the goodness of our God. And there's something therapeutic for us, something helpful to us. When we spend some time in the midst of the struggle of life to just remember how much we have to be thankful for. I, I have adopted, I was reading a book on prayer, and so it was just a simple little acrostic that I found really helpful. So I've been praying this way by this pattern with the word pray, Maybe I'll share it with you, but this idea of pause. So the P is pause and just focus in. A lot of distractions in our world. So just take a moment as we start to pray just to pause and to reflect on Christ. The R is rejoice. The A of pray is ask. 
the why is yield. So are you getting that? Before you ask, before you yield, that, that you, you begin really after you've just, you're focused in, and then you rejoice. And rejoicing is being thankful. It's hard to be discontent when you just are regurgitating all the things you have to be thankful for. And so every day I just spend some time just being reminded of what I have to be thankful for. And so that's what Paul is teaching us. That we should be overflow, then we will overflow with thankfulness. And then Paul transitions to a warning in verse 8. A warning that can help us to, to combat complacency that can come into our lives spiritually. That can get us off track. When you're driving down an unfamiliar road, you know the, I think it's the yellow sign, is it? The whatever, uh, what's the geometric shape of the warning signs along the road? Whatever that is. The yellow ones. And there's like the S curve coming up. And then there's a, tells you how fast you should go if you're, as you're driving along. And what do, you might not do this, but most people that are more, more cautious, what you do is you take your foot off the brake when you see that warning sign, or you're off the gas when you see that warning sign, and you put it over the brake so you're ready, if you, it's unfamiliar, so you're ready, you know you'll be ready to, to make those adjustments. It's a warning. You heed the warning. Paul gives us a warning here in verse 8. And the warning is, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that come from human tradition and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. We have mentioned it a few times in subsequent weeks that Paul was, one of the things he was doing was combating some of the heresies, some of the false teaching that had begun to infiltrate the church here in Colossae. And, and we don't really know exactly what was going on. We can just read between the lines and get some of the, the idea. But he warns them, don't be captured. Don't be, and that word is, don't, don't be captured and led astray, led into captivity by what? Empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Now, if you have the ESV, it translates that same, that same phrase. He says, Paul, in his warning, not to be taken captive, in the way it translates it, with philosophy and empty deceit. I kind of like the way the NLT translates it, Paul's warning. It's so vivid. Empty philosophy, he says, and high-sounding nonsense. So today, let's just pause and just reflect for a moment, think for a moment, as we think about our world, our current culture. Can we just reflect and just think about that our world is absolutely filled with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense? There's a lot of that in our world. Can I get a little amen, maybe? Um, there's a lot of that happening around us. And again, there's not any indication now, what is going on exactly, but we do, it seems from concept, context, know that the heresy, the false teaching that was, that was, began to filter into the church, it wasn't wholesale abandoned Jesus. That's not what was going on. What, what they were being taught from context was is Jesus plus other things. So, Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus keeping the law. Jesus plus uh, do these good works. Jesus plus um, know this, this, have this secret knowledge. Jesus plus do these things. And notice where these empty philosophies, these high-sounding nonsense, where it comes from. The second part of verse 8. Human thinking and spiritual powers of this world. And we have the same thing going on in our culture. Human thinking and human thinking that would diminish the finished work of Jesus on the cross. 
uh, uh, human thinking that would say, oh, well, yeah, Jesus is great. He's a good person. There's a lot to learn from him. But we don't need all that talk about sin and salvation and sacrifices and crosses and all that. Human thinking that would, that would take truth away from who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. We have an enemy who would, who would seek to water down the life-changing, radical, transformative work that can be done in the human heart by Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and in the resurrection. Paul talks about in other places the reality that, that there is a spiritual world, that there's a realm out there, that there's an enemy that prowls around like a, like a lion, the enemy that's waiting to devour us. And Satan would like nothing other, if you've read True Tape Letters, this idea that one of the things, one of the ploys is, get, is to get our world, to get us to think that, that he doesn't exist. He's our enemy. We have an enemy. Paul's warning us that there are spiritual powers in this world that fuel, where, where do these empty philosophies, where this high-sounding nonsense comes, comes from, where does it come from? It comes from the spiritual powers at work in our world. Now, what's that look like practically? What is that empty philosophy or high-sounding nonsense? What could it look like? Well, a simple way to look at it would be just the, the cults that we see in our world or in the past. You think of the David Kresh's and the Branch Davidians. You think of the Jim Joneses and the People's Temple. You think of Heaven Gates. Or you even think in our current, in current culture, you think of Scientology. Empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. It's the empty philosophy of Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus the Republican Party or Jesus plus the Democratic Party. Friends, this world is not our home. It's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus. That's the truth that we find in Scripture. Our kingdom is not of this world. And we water down the truth when we try to marry Jesus with other things. And that's some of the heresy that was coming that had, had infiltrated the church the, the infiltrates the church when, when, when we say, well, there's no, there's no truth is, is relative. It depends on the situation, depends on who you are, what you got going on, all of that. And our culture struggles to believe what's clear in Scripture. And again, empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. And Paul gives us that warning so instead of that, to be wary of that, and instead of that, what should we do to be captured? What does he say? So, rather than Christ. Don't be captured by those things rather than Christ, but be captured by Christ. And so, as we think about some takeaways, that we need to be captured by Christ's wonderment, not human thinking. And by the way, if some of you are wondering, is that actually a word? Wonderment, I looked it up, it actually is a word. Okay, it's a, I, I have used it a whole lot, but I think it's pretty cool. Be captured by the wonderment of Christ, not human thinking. Paul doesn't spend much time talking about the problem, talking about the heresy, talking about, you know, all of that, all the empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense. It's like, it's like he thinks about that for a second, and then he gets right back to Jesus again. He's like, let me, okay, that's, you know, be, be careful, let me warn you, but let me tell you some more about Jesus. And so he runs, here he goes, down another rabbit trail, telling us more about Jesus. Look at verse 9. Let's run the rabbit trail with him. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in the human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is head, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And so Paul's telling them about Christ, telling them about the wonderment of Christ. He's saying all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. That word there, 
all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, is in the human body of Christ. It's not, the, the, the term is not thinking about all the characteristics of God, that Jesus has the characteristics of God. He certainly does, but it, what, it's not, you know, he's love and he's merciful and he's gracious and all those things, he's forgiving. Yes, he is those things, but this term is not talking about the characteristics of God. What this is talking about, he is the very essence of God. He is fully God in a human body, talking about Jesus. That he is God. Jesus is God. He's not just like God. He is God. That's our Savior. That's our Jesus. That's what we're rooted in. That's what we build our lives on. That's what we're built up in him, the amazing, all-sufficient, preeminent Jesus. And since he is fully God, all the fullness of God is found in him. All the benefits of God's saving grace is found in Jesus. John 1.16 says, For his abundance, or from his abundance, we've received one gracious blessing after another. That's Jesus. In him we have received one gracious blessing after another. Jesus, at the end of the day, despite all our efforts to try to understand him, despite all of our our work with our human comprehension to understand who he is, still we need to be captured by his wonderment. It all falls short. In verse 10, the second part of it, don't forget what we talked about in a previous week, that Christ, all authority is in him. That he's the head of the church, he's the head over every ruler, he's the head over every authority, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess one day. That's Jesus. Let's go back and see what else he has to say about our relationship with him. Look at verse 11. And when you came to Christ, you were circumcised. But not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. Paul mentioned circumcision. Circumcision was the practice that God had given the Jews that would help them be separate from the people, groups around them, the surrounding nations. And for obvious reasons, we're not going to go into a lot of detail. If you want to know a little bit more detail about circumcision, I see my wife is over here to the left. You can just go talk to her afterwards, and she'll explain it all to you. We'll let you do that. Crystal, you ready for that? Okay, so Paul is reminding them when he comes to Christ, he's giving this illustration. When he came to Christ, um, made him your Savior, made him your Lord, that he performed in you, on you, a spiritual circumcision. The cutting away of your, just like... Uh, Literally, circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh, that he cut away your sinful nature. And in Christ, we can find that victory. We can find that victory over the power of sin in our lives. Uh, Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 6 of Romans, he says, sin is no longer your master. So in light of that idea that Christ wants to cut it away and to help us with it, have you sacrificed your sinful nature? Have you put it out there to allow Christ to cut what he needs to cut away? Is there some area of life, your life that you've continued to struggle, even though you're trying to follow Christ, that you've struggled and you've not surrendered to him? Is there something that you need to sacrifice to him? Is there some secret sin, some habit, some unforgiveness, some area where you've continued to rebel against 
What we know is the truth that we find in God's Word. Chapter 3 gives us some hints as to the sinful nature, kind of describes some of it. Some examples, sinful uh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, to name a few. There's others. But what would, is there anything that God is just prompting you that you need to surrender, that you need to sacrifice, that you need to ask him to cut out of your life? And then he goes on in verse 12, and he says, For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. And so notice that Paul is just, he kind of assumes that everybody that is there in the church that has embraced Christ as Savior has been baptized. He says, you were, for you were. So he just assumes that that has happened. And then he gives them this picture of baptism. This reminds them that you were buried with Christ when you go under the water and you were raised as you come up out of the water. Your sins, your old life is buried. And when you come out of that water, you're celebrating the new life that you have found in Christ. Because, he says, we trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. So when we put our faith in Jesus, death, unless the Lord comes, will take all of us. But when we put our faith in Christ, that we, just like Christ, will be raised to new life. We will be raised from the dead as he uh, was. And so we put our faith in that, trusting in the power of God to raise us up to eternal life. Our old sinful life dead, the new life that we find in Christ, ultimately is going to lead to victory over death. And there's another important question to consider. If we are following Christ, just the simple question, have you willingly followed Christ in baptism? So if you put your faith in Christ, a, a wonderful next step is to, is to follow him in baptism. To, to go under the water and, and to celebrate the fact that my old life is gone. And as I come up out of the water to celebrate the new life that I have in Christ. We're going to have a baptismal service at each of our campuses coming up. If you'd like to be baptized, you've never been baptized. And we'll have the big one at the lake. But we're going to have one at every uh, campus here coming up. If you'd like to be baptized, you've never been baptized. We would encourage you to make that step. Come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. There's a couple final verses, verses 14 and 15, as we conclude. And I love these last verses. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So here's this picture that Paul is painting for us in our heads. That we're sinners. That we have this debt that we owed and we all owe this debt. The scripture says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so I have mine, you have yours, and there's a rap sheet. And there's, there's all these things that we've, we've done, all this, this stuff. But when we put our faith in Christ, not only is the debt canceled, not only the, but he, but he says he's the, the, the record of the charges He canceled the record of the charges and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Do you get that visual? That idea, not only are we forgiven, but he took the the list of everything, the one copy there is of all of it, and he took it away and he nailed it to the cross. Forever taken care of. We're forgiven. He took our debt. He took the document that recorded the charges And he nailed it on the cross. He shed his blood on that cross. He gave his life on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins on that cross. The full debt that I owed. Again, not only did he forgive me, 
but he canceled the debt. He got rid of the evidence. (laughs) We're no longer under the bondage of the law, but we're under grace. And not only did he deal with that, but he also dealt with our enemy that would, would seek to remind us of our debt that has been paid, but would, would get us to just want, want us to feel guilty, that enemy. He talks about that Satan, although he probably thought he had won as Christ is there nailed to the cross, he defeated the enemy. Strip Satan and his army of the weapons that he would use against us. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And what does he say in the last part of verse 15? He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Are we, last question, living victorious in his victory on the cross? Are you living in his victory on the cross? All that he did for you. And today as we have talked about faith and having a relationship with Christ. If you today have not made that decision, today's your day. I would encourage you to make that decision. I want to pray for you in just a little bit. And if you'd like to join me in praying and inviting Christ to be your Savior, we'd love to talk to you about that journey. You could text the word Jesus at 269-231-8692. We'd love to follow up and, and help you on that journey. Today, as our worship team comes back out, we're reminded of our all-sufficient Savior Jesus. And one of the things that we wanted to do is we think about Jesus, that we need to put our roots down into him, we need to build our lives on him, that we need to live a life of thankfulness, that we need to just be captured by the wonderment of Jesus, all of that, to just ask ourselves the question, are we living victorious? With all that Christ did for us on the cross, are we living victorious? You got a piece of paper as you came in, I've already filled mine out. If you did not get one, we've got some people that will walk around and you can just make eye contact with them, motion to them, or if you need a pen, there's some pens, I think, scattered around the room if you're here in the, in the room. And we would, I would just invite you to prayerfully consider what God might want you to nail to the cross. What, what maybe is going on in your life? Maybe he's, he's convicted you of something that you that you want to just believe that God could help you to finally get victory over some area of sin in your life that you've struggled with. You could nail that to the cross. I'm, I'm nailing that. Maybe there's a hurt, to use the vernacular of celibate recovery. Maybe there's a hurt in your life that you just, you, you've struggled with that, you're going to nail it to the cross. Or a habit that you can't seem to get victory over. Or a hang-up that you need to nail to the cross and just claim victory. Maybe there's a loved one that you just believe that, that you know that God has something for them. You want to see them come to Christ. There's stuff going on in their life. And you just put their name down and you nail them and, and claim the victory that you know that God could do amazing things in their life to put their name. Maybe there's a health issue that you're going to claim victory over or your marriage or some anxiety. I had somebody come up to me in the first service and say that God had healed them of the anxiety that they've been struggling with. And so as we worship, And we're going to have a little extended time of worship. As we worship, we'd invite you to come and nail, physically nail, whatever it is that God is is prompting you to nail to this cross. Trusting that the one who gave his life for you, who is walking with you, wants to help you find victory in whatever area that is. He has won the victory by nailing it to the cross. Father, in Jesus' name, as we conclude today, Father, I pray that you would just remind us of the victorious Savior that is Jesus. That as we trust him, as we, as we by faith respond to what he's 
doing in our lives, God, that, 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 that we can find that same victory. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so, Father, today, as you speak, are speaking to us, Father, I pray that you would just prompt us. What, God, do you want us to, to nail to this cross? To leave here and then to walk away claiming the victory that will be ours by faith. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would set people free. You'd break the bonds, the chains for that person maybe that, that has never invited Christ to be their Savior. Maybe what they could write is, God, I nail my unbelief. And you, I pray, God, that you would just reveal your truth. Reveal who you are if you're real. And maybe that person could just nail that. God, I don't know what you're doing in people's lives, but I know that you're here. I know that you want to set people free today, to find victory today. And we pray, Father, that you would do that as we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name as we nail it to the cross and claim the victory in Jesus' name. Amen.